Prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces, occurs in up to 2% of the population. Most people struggle with it alone, unaware it even has a name. The stories in this podcast can be painful and hilarious. Join us for an exploration of the people, science, and realities of this condition. Maybe you have a hard time remembering faces. Come for the stories, stay for the coping techniques. My guest today was an elite weightlifter growing up in Australia and New Zealand, developed and later beat an eating disorder, and then made helping others find a healthier food path her life's mission here in America. Christy Amadio, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Did I pronounce that right, Amadio? You did. Um, you're one of the few people that get that right. <laughs> the, the best one I've had has been Armadillo. Oh, our conversation uh, today is a massive example of synchronicity in the universe. And I'll explain a little bit more what I mean about that later. <laughs> um, but could you briefly expand on that very short description that I gave of you? Just, you know, uh, lay the groundwork for listeners um, a little bit about your life and where you come from and how you got to where you are today. For sure. I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so actually, I was born in England and my parents are originally from New Zealand. So born in England and moved to Australia when I was about two and a half years old. So I spent most of my life in Australia growing up and moved to New Zealand um, in my early 20s. So even though I grew up in Australia, I really feel connected to New Zealand. And I had this strange sensation when the plane landed on the runway and I disembarked off the plane, like something in my soul just went, oh, I'm home. And for the first time, I really felt like I belonged. So I often refer to myself as being a Kiwi or being from New Zealand because that feels like home to me. Um, but yeah, I was in, sorry, I got sidetracked to <laughs> spiral moment. Um, but I was an elite athlete. I got, uh, selected for the sport of weightlifting when I was 14 and it wasn't something I had an interest in or wanted to do. I just happened to be kind of, I played around with gymnastics. I rode horses. So I was like a strong kid and they had talent scouts come to our school and test all the 14 year olds, um, for, for weightlifting. Cause they were trying to boost the profile of cycling, rowing, and weightlifting. And so I got sent a letter saying, Hey, you're, you've got talent in this area. Here's a scholarship. And I was like, I don't really want to do it. It's, it's weightlifting. That's not a girl's sport. But, um, I went along and it turns out the kind of talent scouts were right. Cause I think within a year I was national champion and I was headed off to the world championships at 15. So that was, it was a crazy kind of time for me because I was just one at 14. I was a regular 14 year old kid. And then a year later I was off at the world championships and and this is like uh, olympic powerlifting so you're doing um olympic weightlifting so snatch clean and jerk yeah. yeah so i did that um until i was 19 so i went to four world championships never never quite made the commonwealth games or the olympics um and yeah as you said had an eating disorder which kind of developed around the time of weightlifting and there's so many factors that lead into that i could talk about that for hours but i won't um and so i had these kind of two paths going. One was an elite athlete and the other was this secret eating disorder that kind of all came to a head when I was about 18, 19 and um, didn't actually discover that I had prosopagnosia until I was in my um, mid-20s, I think. Um, and I guess we'll talk about more about that as we, as we get into it. But um, uh, since, since recovering from my eating disorder, I've made it my life's work and it's absolutely my passion to help people recover their relationship with food, with their bodies and 
really with who they are and making peace with themselves. So my worlds keep colliding with this uh, podcast project. Um, I've struggled with my weight for a long time. I've tried all sorts of diet strategies. Yet I, a part of me definitely realizes that I'm devoting way too much mental space to this uh, issue, and that's probably unhealthy. But the connection to you is uh, I was talking to a therapist uh, recently about just food and, and diet in general, and um, this literally happened about two weeks ago. She said, uh, you know, there's this podcast you should be listening to. It's called The Food Psych. Oh, I love Food Psych. Yep. And I wrote down the lady's name. Uh, Christy Harrison. Christy Harrison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all about having a healthier attitude around eating. And uh, then you and I met on Facebook around prosopagnosia and come to find out you were a guest on her show. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Very serendipitous. So um, in the podcast that I listened to, and I'll put a, sh- I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Great. Um, you were really focused on uh, a healthy approach to eating, a healthy appro- approach to um, the way you view your body, I believe. That was kind of the focus of the show. But interestingly, interestingly um, at one point towards the end of the interview, you seemed to make a connection between prosopagnosia and your eating disorder. Sure. Almost as if you see there, there was some causality there. Yeah, I guess I want to say a couple of things, like in terms of you know, I like the way you put it, like I wanted to have a healthy approach to eating and, and moving my body. And I guess I want to clarify that for anyone that does have an eating disorder and is listening, because I know that the word healthy can be such a, uh, a weighted word, no pun intended. Um, so for me, what healthy eating or, or moving my body healthily means is I really mean healthy for my soul. Um, and I think that in, out in diet culture, healthy can mean certain foods or um, avoiding certain foods or moving in a certain way. And so I think what I really love about Christy Harrison and her podcast is she really does focus on the soul piece. And it's about like, absolutely go and eat that chocolate cake and enjoy it. And that's healthy because what's not healthy is depriving your soul. So I just wanted to clarify that if that's okay, if you think it's worth putting in. And I'm probably going to break all kinds of uh, rules about how you're supposed to talk about these topics. So you can feel free to correct me. That's absolutely okay. We'll we'll just have a conversation about it. Um, Absolutely. There was a really strong link between my eating disorder and prosopagnosia. And I just want to point out too, I've noticed that I feel like Americans say it differently, prosopagnosia. And it really didn't become apparent until I was really midway through eating disorder treatment. So in order for me to get better, I flew from New Zealand to America into residential treatment and I spent seven months in a full treatment program. And it was about, I'd moved out to a transition house and I knew I had prosopagnosia, but I'd never really talked about it because it didn't seem to me to be related at all to my eating disorder. So it was just this thing that I had. And How old were you when you knew you had prosopagnosia? I was, I want to say I was probably about 25. Okay. When I found, when I like found out, did the test, wrote to Brad Duchesne, did all the things. Um, so when I was recovering, I was 27 when I went to treatment for my eating disorder. And what happened is my, I was walking down the street, I was going to the grocery store and my therapist drove past in her car, but I didn't realize this. Um, and I think she, she honked her horn and her recollection of it is I looked right at her in the eyes and then turned my head and kept walking and completely ignored, ignored her. 
And then later that day, I went in to meet her and she kind of ripped into me a little bit and was like, what were you doing? Like, she was like, she was like, she thought I was doing something shady, right? Because I was ignoring her and she was like, what was going on? And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was you. Um, and she's like, what do you mean? Like, you know, you've seen me every day for the last however many months. And I explained about prosopagnosia and she just about fell off the couch. She was like, you're kidding. Because in addition to an eating disorder at the time, I also had something called BDD or body dysmorphic disorder, which meant that I would see myself as, hmm, how do I describe it? It's like I felt that my stomach was not even just not okay, but I felt like it was grotesque. Like if people saw it, they would be scarred for life. Like I had a very distorted view of myself. And so a lot of my work um, in treatment had been around body image and what I saw versus what other people saw. Um, and so she said to me, she's like, well, how do you recognize me then? And I'm like, well, you have a really distinctive voice and you're, you're, you make big movements with your hands and that's how I recognize you. And she's like, well, how do you recognize other people? And I'm like, oh, by their bodies. And there was this silence and we kind of looked at each other and I think the penny dropped for me at the same time the penny dropped for her. Wow. And it was like I had this mental illness that was all about my body and it was in that moment we both kind of got the gravity of that, of, of understanding, I think, that because I had to focus on other people's bodies in order to recognize them, because I had an eating disorder, that had kind of taken taken seed and just become a whole forest and I was convinced that everybody looked at bodies the way I did not realizing that no people actually just look at other people's faces and know who they are shocking that is really interesting um in a recent interview with uh, another guest Jason Werbeloff who is a philosopher and science fiction writer he talked about his choice of uh PhD study and mentioned that it was directly linked now, looking back on it, to his prosopagnosia. So uh, very similar to what you're describing here, maybe a little more constructive in, <laughs> in his case. Um, but that's interesting. And he brought up a point that um, Oliver Sacks would talk about how this somewhat unknown condition has such a deep influence on most of the people's lives who live with it. And they don't even realize that until much later. Absolutely. And I think even just um, listening to your podcast, it's made me think more about how much prosopagnosia has affected my life and I guess shaped part of who I am in a way. Hmm. In the uh, Food Psych uh, podcast, you said you were describing this story of talking with your therapist. You said, I, I view people or I recognize people by their shape. So you're hypersensitive to shape, be it skinny, fat, strange in some other way, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you believe that you were focused on that too much. And that led to this idea that, you know, your own shape was going to be incredibly important to the rest of the world around you. Pretty much, yeah. And I mean, I absolutely recognize people by, you know, their voices, their footsteps, um, the way they dress you know, all those other things that people with prosopagnosia recognize. But I think because I had an eating disorder, it took that one tool that I had of recognizing people by their shape um, and just really magnified that and blew that up. But then as you became healthier in your thinking, uh, it sounds like you have started to rely more on how does this person make me feel? I think that was the example you used. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
I, I'm going to assume that I still recognize people by their shape, but I don't, I don't obsess over it or fixate on it. It's like, it has as much meaning to me as, you know, a commercial on TV. It's just like, oh yeah, in, information. And then I move on. Whereas in the past, it would be like, that's what their stomach looks like. What does my stomach look like? Blah, blah, blah. And it would just be this, this, uh, incessant noise in my head. And I think, you know, being recovered from both my eating disorder and BDD now, it's, it's not a thing anymore. Mm. I found that interesting in that I've taken, I've taken all these uh, tests online for prosopagnosia. How do you say it again? I, I say prosopagnosia. Oh, it sounds the same to me. Oh, it does? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. I don't know. Maybe it's, there's just a twang in the American accent that, that sounds different. Um, but on the ones where they uh, have a face, uh, and it's not a famous person's face, it's a sort of random person from the street, a collection of them, on those kinds, I find that I can kind of cheat the system a little bit using what I think you're describing here about how the person makes you feel. So I can look at a collection of uh, features on a face and say, hmm, makes me think serial killer or uh, makes me think the person's unhappy or makes me think the person might be fun, you know? And in quick succession, if I see that image again and I have that same response, I can say, oh yeah, I've seen that one before. 100%, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I always like to get a sense for the severity because uh, face blindness is on a spectrum. I've said, you know, I'm mild. Um, probably people in my life that would disagree with that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, how do you measure your uh, face blindness? Like where, if, if it's on a spectrum, what are some examples? Or like, would you recognize, would you recognize uh, Tom Cruise or uh, Mel Gibson or someone like that? It's such a great question. Um, I actually knew you were going to ask this question, and so I looked up my test results from when I took them. Um, so I'm in the second or third percentile, which suggests to me that it's it's a fairly moderate kind of form of prosopagnosia, but then I also feel like I function pretty well in life. So I'm going to say mild to moderate. Um, I'm actually not a big kind of TV movie star fan, so I think that's where it's difficult because I think if you flashed up Tom Cruise's face, I may recognize him, but I may not. And that wouldn't be because of prosopagnosia. It'd be just because I'm not a big <laughs> movie follower, you know? Um, but yeah, I'll go with mild to moderate. Yeah. yeah. And when you look at uh, faces in real time, uh, do you believe you're able to see an entire face or Absolutely. can you only... Okay, so you can, it's not that you can only focus on a nose or an eye at a time and see all the detail of that. You can see the face in its entirety. Totally. Like sometimes I lie in bed at night and I think, oh, I'm just, because I feel like I have imposter syndrome. I'm like, I mustn't have prosopagnosia. Like, all right, let's just go through this once and for all. And I'll like go through like friends in my head and be like, all right, I'm going to think of my friend Megan. And for example, I know she has like startlingly white teeth. She loves brushing her teeth. And so when I think of Megan, Bless. If she ever hears it, she'll probably laugh. But I think of a pair of, te of white teeth, you know. Um, she also gives great hugs. And whenever she sees me, like, she'll be like, Christy, in this really high-pitched voice and give me a big hug. So it's like this combination of white teeth, great hug, um, exuberant sort of welcome. And I'm like, oh, that's Megan. Um, and then if I think of my friend Tui, um, I have no idea what her face looks like. But 
she calls me Bear. Like, you know, it's an affectionate, like, Bear. That's like, a, it's a name we call each other as friends. Um, and so I always know it's Tui, because when she sees me, she yells out Bear and comes running and gives me a big hug. Um, and I'll go through, like, five, ten friends in my head, and I'll be like, yeah, I have no idea what their face looks like. So when I try and recall someone's face in my mind, it's either just a black hole and it's like I can see their hair maybe their ears and like maybe from like their neck down but their face is like this black hole or another way I'd describe it is if you imagine that you're wearing glasses and say you've had your finger on some butter or something and you stick it on your glasses so it becomes kind of smudged and fuzzy and imagine that that fuzzy part is where the face is, but everywhere else is fine. And no matter which way you try to look, the fuzzy dot remains over the face. That's kind of what it feels like to me. Like I, it, it's there, but I just can't grasp it. Right. Or with your friend with the white teeth, um, can you actually picture the teeth? Yeah, absolutely. I can picture a teeth, but I have no idea what the rest of the face looks like. None. Mm. Yeah. For me, I, I will pick out something like, I've made this joke too many times, so I have to stop saying it, but I love friends with axe wounds on their faces. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I see like a crazy scar, I, I can focus on that or a big set of ears or, you know, something unusual about the nose. I can kind of bring that into my visualization, hold it. But while I'm holding that, the rest of the face starts to fuzz out and slide away. It's like I can only grasp that one thing and hold on to it. And then, you know, like when I'm laying in bed doing this exercise, <laughs> you're describing you oh yeah yeah <laughs> and uh sometimes just daydream or while i'm driving down the road i try to well can i actually see a face or not like and, a game yeah yeah but as a uh you know then try to shift my attention to you know maybe the eye or the cheek side of the face then the nose which i had locked down starts to gently oh, slide wow. away okay. <laughs> um so you discovered prosopagnosia was a thing at about 25, I think you said? Yeah. So I was working in New Zealand. I was a sea kayak guide and I had two male bosses that like own the company and I would like mix them up like you wouldn't believe. And apparently they look very different. Apparently one has red hair, could have fooled me, but I would always call them like their names are Andy and Steve and I would interchange them. I'd have no idea who I was talking to. And it just kind of became this joke that like Christy just doesn't know who people are. But what happened that made it even worse is people like tourists would turn up to go sea kayaking. And then we put them all in exactly the same like um, kayak company life jackets. They're all in yellow boats. It became this nightmare because everybody looks exactly the same. It's like, it's like the minions, you know? Um, and then they would get out of their boats at the end of the day. It was my job to drive them home and they'd come piling out of the van and I'd have no idea who anybody was. And it was embarrassing because I'd spent the whole day with them, you know, showing them around, um, talking with them, connecting. And then I'd be like, I, I, I don't know who, who needs to go where. I don't know who anybody is. Um, and one day I was at work and I can't remember who said it to me, but someone said, did you watch... 60 minutes last night, Christy. And I was like, no, I didn't. And they're like, oh, you need to watch it. And I was like, why? And they and they all just started laughing and they're like, you just need to go home and watch it. And I was like, okay. So I went home and watched it and saw this thing about prosopagnosia and it didn't really start to grab me until they talked about, like, I didn't really believe that it was me until they began to talk about when people watch movies, that they find it really hard to follow the main characters. And I was like, oh, I thought everybody struggled with that. Like, um, and then talking about how 
people would recognize others like, you know, by their footsteps or by the fact they had a dog and it started to slowly sink in like, oh, this is starting to sound like me. And by the end of the 60 minutes episode, I was like, I was Googling Brad Duchesne. I was doing prosopagnosia tests. I was like, it just, and it just felt like so much had been explained because so often I felt like I was dumb. Like I think it really affected my self-esteem because I'd be at a party and I'd shake someone's hand and be like, hey, I'm Christy. They're like, yeah, we did this like two minutes ago. And it'd be this awkward kind of like, did we? Like, um, so it really just. But before that 60 minutes episode and that single moment of, of lightning, that lightning bolt of intuition at that moment, yeah. uh, your whole life prior to that, the previous 25 years or so, you would just shrug off all of these mistakes that would happen as, hmm, that's strange. Well, it's a really great question. And it's something I ponder over a lot, Jeff, because I'm not sure if it's congenital or if it was from a head trauma. So when I was um, probably about, uh, I want to say six months before I found out about prosopagnosia, I had a kayaking accident where my head met a rock and the rock won. Um, and I didn't have a bad concussion. Um, you know, I had a few stitches to the face, but I distinctly remember maybe a month after that happened is uh, we were all graduating and my friend's dad was walking down the street and I thought it was my friend because they had the same walk. And I was like, hey, Anthony. And my friend started laughing. They're like, uh, that's his dad. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, and I think that's the first moment I can remember mistaking someone publicly. Um, and I think as a kid, I had a very, I want to say like I had a same, same interact, inter, interaction in terms of I rode horses. And so I'd always pair people with their horse. Um, and that was very easy for me to do. Um, I went to a very, very small school um, in primary school. So it was very easy for me to pick people. So it's hard for me to say if it was around when I was a kid or if it was actually the head trauma that did that. You may be the first person uh, with acquired prosopagnosia on the podcast. Oh, happy to have that badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really amazing. Where, um, where did you get hit on the head? Was it the back of the head, the side? Um, front kind of temple over my over my right eye. Is this, is this a temple? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I got hit on the head and it hurt and I had a concussion and some stitches. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um. After that, you noticed uh, more instances then. Uh, in, was it more novel then? Because if you hadn't lived with it your whole life and this suddenly started happening, it seems like it would be a little more prominent in your memory. Well, it's interesting because I was, um, I was at Polytech. I was training to be an outdoor guide. And so then that, so the concussion happened. And then a month later, I, that first kind of like public like oh I'm, I made a big like boo-boo um, and then uh, once we all graduated then I moved to another town and became a sea kayak guide and that was when I couldn't I couldn't tell you know Joe from Henry every everybody was new yeah um, and that's when it really started to stand out that 60 minutes episode is uh, probably going to be famous on this um, on this podcast series uh, I've had three guests reference it so far oh yeah but I think something else that really stuck out and I've all actually, and I think this is the part that confuses me a bit, Jeff, is I've always struggled big time with directions. Like I am the worst. Like the other night I was at a restaurant and I went into the bathroom and when I came out, I was like, I 
like I had no idea whether it was left, right, straight ahead as, you know, to go to my table. And even when I was working at the kayak place, I remember my, I think it was my first day, I was driving the van into work and it was a tiny town. There are 150 people in this town, right? Small town. It had one road that had a dog leg in it and the kayak place was on that road. I drove straight past it and they were like killing themselves laughing, you know, as the, the company van drives past the company hmm. because I'm lost on a dog leg road. And I was like, so the ability for me to recognize a, mm, it's hard to describe, but both directions and recognizing almost the, holding the memory, holding the visual memory of the place where I want to be is really hard for me. Um, and that definitely happened when I was younger as well, like cars in car parks, things like that. Um, t trying to tell kayaks apart is really difficult. Like, so shapes of things I find quite difficult and that's always been the case as well. Yeah. One thing I see in, uh, online discussions, uh, people are always, they always seem to be searching for what other maladies might be connected, yeah. you know, like maybe the, you know, there are many things that are, uh, centered in this part of the brain, uh, and if you have one, you have all of them. But so far, it's just totally anecdotal. I haven't done a scientific study of this, but uh, I'm not seeing strong connections, you know, like there, there'll be people who say, yes, I really, really like the color blue, but and I have prosopagnosia. So, <laughs> um, um, so I'm not sure that that's a that's an area that I'm really curious about, like what other areas could be tied to this? Um, I'm also very bad with directions, just wow. as you described but I don't know that the two are connected. Okay. Um, I was just before I jumped on the podcast, actually, I was looking at one of the email trains I had with Brad Duchesne and he had mentioned, um, I can pull, I think I've still got it up right now, actually. Um, but he had mentioned that the two are connected. Um, so Brad said, here we go. I'll read it out to you. <laughs> um, so my question to him was, I said, my sense of direction is appalling. Is there a link between face recognition um, and direction. And he said, absolutely. One study found something like 50% of people with face recognition impairments also experience navigational problems. Well, thank you, Google Maps. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> without that, I would be lost. <laughs> so um, in the 25-year-old range, when you discovered prosopagnosia and you had the kayaking uh, guide job, you were still in the midst of your eating disorder and body dysmorphia? Absolutely. And just about to start looking for some help with that? That's right. Yeah. Just after that season. Yeah. It was after that season I started getting help. Yeah. The help that you found um, was a little different than what I think most people think of when, when they think of, you know, therapy, let's say, for an eating disorder. Um, you recognize that or you found someone who proposed that if you really want to solve this, you need to be with the person in house is the best or together for, you know, you know, a full 24 hour period or longer. Um, so that you're sort of attacking the problem at the time that you're dealing with it, which might be in your kitchen at home rather than in a therapist office. hundred percent. I think, you know, by the time I was looking for help from eating disorder, it was really severe and it did get to the point where it was like, well, I need more help than what New Zealand could provide. And what New Zealand could provide was, I think, two therapy sessions twice a week. And I was like, this is not even a drop in the ocean. It doesn't, it doesn't even amount to a drop. I was like, this is not enough. Um, 
And so I did need residential treatment and America has a fantastic system um, for people with eating disorders. Um, and so, yeah, I did wind up in residential treatment and I was in res for four months. And for me, I think with my eating disorder, I'd had it for so long, I'd forgotten how to live. I didn't know what a normal portion looked like on a plate. I didn't know how to grocery shop. I didn't know how to be in the world with food. Um, and so residential was really important. It was an absolutely necessary step for me to relearn, not just making peace with food, but how to interact in the world with food and, and be normal. To shorten what was, I'm sure, a very long journey, you were successful. I was successful, yes. <laughs> you believe you, 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 you are recovered to this day. 100%. And then uh, you decided, this was so amazing, I need to bring this to more people, and so I'm going to make it my, my profession. That's right, yeah. And the initial idea was that you wanted to go beyond uh, the therapy, the therapist's office. You wanted to be able to, you know, bring this to people in their real lives, to the point where you would actually go to uh, clients' houses and live with them for anywhere from one day to possibly a month. Um, can you describe that a little more? Yeah, absolutely. So something I found when I was in treatment is um, there's a high level of comorbidity. So people with eating disorders can have substance abuse or um, sorry, substance or alcohol abuse issues. Um, and so in America, they have something called a sober coach, which is someone that will go and live with you once you've left residential treatment um, for alcohol or substance addiction. And I was like, oh, that would be amazing. Why can't we have that for eating disorders? And I think... Oh, oh so when you went for your, um, what did you call treatment. it? Your, uh, your treatment, uh, your in-house in treatment. That was at a facility then? That was at a facility, yeah. Okay. So the difference here is you were thinking, what if I could bring that directly into someone's home? Absolutely, 100%. And that had been done with other addictions. It'd, be do it'd been done with addiction. And I think the difference between, say, someone who has a substance abuse issue is, for them, recovery is about abstinence, right? You just abstain, don't drink alcohol, don't take drugs. Um, whereas with an eating disorder, it's, well, eat, but eat enough, but don't eat too much. And exercise, you know, move your body because it feels good, but don't overdo it. Um, and so I think for someone to go and live in people's houses who are in recovery from an eating disorder, it takes, takes another level of specialty because it's not just abstinence. Anyone, anyone can coach abstinence. Um, and I, by no means do I want to um, not acknowledge the difficulty that people who are going through substance abuse challenges have. Um, but I think that it's something different when it's food because it's, it's be with the food, but don't underdo it. Don't overdo it. Um, well, and you, you can't abstain from food. You cannot abstain from food. I tried. It doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's not sustainable long-term. Um, yeah. and so I'm, uh, I'm a qualified therapist in Australia. So I got my master's degree, um, in counseling in Australia, but it doesn't transfer over to America. And so at first I was gutted because I had this amazing idea of like, wow, I could go into people's homes and I could, I could really help them in the moment and help them with their, you know, with communicating with their families and transitioning back into life. And then when I found out that my therapy degree wasn't recognized, I was like, that dream is over. But then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to find a way. So I became an eating disorder recovery coach. There's a school out here called the Carolyn Coston Institute, where you can be an eating disorder recovery coach. So I did that and I operate as a coach and I think it works really well. So yeah, I get to live with people. I feel so blessed to do that. I've been to six different countries with people. So I've been to uh, India, England, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, 
all over the world and living with people who sometimes are moms and have husbands and kids or who might be studying at school or they could be 15 years old. So I've really been privileged to to get to be a part of so many different families and and really see it from the inside. And what I see in living with people is it just, I really get to help them work through the eating disorder in the moment. Because I think in a therapist's office, you can process that stuff. You talk for an hour, whatever, you go home. But when you go home, the eating disorder is still there. And then the thing that I love about living with people is it's like when it shows up, it's like, cool, let's talk about it now. Let's deal with it now. Um, and I just see so much good that comes out of it. When people talk about their profession or their job, um, I always send it through this, uh, what would I do with prosopagnosia? How would that affect me with prosopagnosia filter? And so here's how I think about what you're describing. On the one hand, there's some relief in that you know you're going to be living with one person. There might be three or four other people in a family pod that are there, but it's contained. Like you're probably going to very quickly be able to, and it's totally intimate, right? And so you're going to be able to develop um, recognition for those people through other means besides the face, I think pretty quickly. Very quickly. Absolutely. And from that perspective, I think, ah, that sounds great. But then I imagine uh, if you're with them for a week or a month, um, and then you've all agreed that you're done, then you leave. For me, I think my recognition of them would fade very quickly after that. And I would be terrified of actually meeting them again somewhere, like at an event, and not recognizing them after having had such an intimate uh, relationship with them. It's funny you say that because I'm, I'm thinking of it right now and I'm actually living with a client as we speak and I'm trying to visualize their face in my mind right now and I've got nothing. So I think like even if I look in the mirror, Jeff, and I look at my own face, I'm like, oh, that's what I look like. And then if I close my eyes and look away, my face isn't there. Like, so my ability to recall, it's kind of just non-existent. Mm. So I actually feel okay about it. Like it's, it's almost the perfect setup for prosopagnosia is that I can come in, I'm living in this very intimate environment. It's very contextual. I know that there's going to be five people at this house maximum. <laughs> Got that down. Um, and if I see them in the future, I mean, they know I have prosopagnosia, but also the chances of bumping into someone randomly are pretty slim, I think, because, you know, I see people all over the world. Oh, right. And, and uh, once you're done, you probably don't have much of a opportunity to interact with them again later. Yeah, like I, I definitely see clients online once I've, um, once the Libyan's over. And then whenever someone's online, it comes up with their name, which is... right. <laughs> totally cheating it's in my calendar i know who i'm seeing so i don't know that i necessarily planned the the structure of my work around prosopagnosia but it certainly uh works very well you, you've settled into something that actually fits nicely with it. very nicely yeah yeah um recovered living is the name of your company and website it is yeah um yeah really I am 100% behind the idea that being fully recovered from an eating disorder is not just possible, but it's possible for everyone. Um, there's no question. And I think I'm so passionate about that recovered piece because for so long I was told that I'd always be in recovery or that I'd be have the eating disorder for the rest of my life and I'd have to learn to manage it. And that's just not the case today. I'm fully recovered. And so I'm always 
absolutely flying the flag for everybody that they don't have to live with an eating disorder. And I accept that I'm probably going to live with prosopagnosia for the rest of my life unless they come up with some awesome cure. But I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't feel like it impairs my life. So you mentioned it in the Food Psych uh, podcast. And I've seen you in a few other places online if you just do a Google search, right? Um, but I really haven't found any other instances where you've talked about it publicly. In fact, um, notably, you, you did a TED Talk um, in from Christchurch, I believe. That's right. That was a New Zealand TED Talk. Yeah. And um, obviously, it's on this topic uh, of recovery. Um, but I don't believe you mentioned prosopagnosia in there at all. No, that was a, that was a hard Ted talk to write because 18 minutes feels like a long time, but then when you're trying it's to, it's just 18 minutes, it, it's just 18 minutes. And I'm like, there is so much I wanted to say that I didn't get to say, but, um, yeah, I think prosopagnosia is not something I talk about a lot when talking about my recovery. I think because firstly, and I'm sure you've experienced this is people don't really get it when you try and explain it to them. They're like, they're like, Oh, I'm bad with faces too. And I'm like, yeah, but this is like really bad. It's a whole yeah. new level. Um, so I feel like for people who are more, um, how do I say it? I feel like when I'm talking about BDD, body dysmorphic disorder, I'm more likely to talk about the prosopagnosia because I think people can relate to that more. Um, and yeah, I think it just hasn't had the opportunity to come up. So I really love having the ability to, or the, the opportunity to talk about it. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, maybe, uh, your clients who you haven't spoken about this uh, will be able to listen to this episode and learn a little bit more about you. But it sounds like that's something that you're going to bake into an uh, engagement. If you're going to live with someone, uh, you do bring that up pretty early. Like that's one of the things on your checklist to talk through. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's a great dinner topic. You know, <laughs> like if dinner's hard and they're struggling, I'll be like, hey, do you want to know a crazy fact? <laughs> <laughs> and there's two hours of discussion. Absolutely. Guaranteed. <laughs> uh, guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that gets most people is when I say, look, I can look in the mirror and see myself. But when I close, you know, when I close my eyes and turn away, like I don't have any recognition in my face. Like it boggles my mind that anyone can do that. It's like a secret, secret skill. But you can kind of remember doing that when before the head injury or not? Um, no, I don't ever remember like playing those games in the mirror with myself. Um, mm. I think where it came to light is I was filling out like a prosopagnosia questionnaire in New Zealand. And I think the question was, describe your mother's face. And I was like, well, that's easy. She's got blue eyes. And I know that because... You know, in science, when I was 10 years old, we were talking about dominant recessive, you know, eye genes. Um, and I was like, and, and then I was like, hmm. and that's all right. I'll go to my dad. And I was like, well, my dad has brown eyes. And, and I was like, oh, and then it said, describe your own face. And I was like, well, that's easy. Oh, and it was this real moment of like, huh, I've never thought about the fact I couldn't remember my face because that's like saying to someone like, tell me about a color you've never seen before. Like you can't do it. Um, so that was when I first kind of went, Oh, this is trippy. If you have two faces, um, next to each other, two photos next to each other, are you able to differentiate? Very difficult. Very, very difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about you? Uh, I was talking about this with another guest. Uh, it's a little bit like those magazines in the back of the magazine. They'll have, you know, two, uh, images that are exactly the same except the certain color yeah spot the difference and uh, i'm actually pretty good at that because 
I'm really honing in, you know, scanning this little section versus that little section. And if they, if they're side by side, I can spot differences quite easily. Um, if I didn't know that that was the game we were playing, I would just assume that the two are exactly the same, right? In phases. The other one that I've been thinking about recently is, um, everyone tells me that I look just like my father who's passed away and my 13 year old son looks just like me, that all three of us are exactly the same. I don't see it at all. Like I always smile and laugh and I've even made the joke like, Oh yeah, here's my son. He's my mini me. And everyone laughs and agrees and like, Oh my God, he does look just like you, but I don't see it. I want to see the picture now. (laughs) You know, I'll post that. Maybe I'll have have to ask my wife if that's okay. Um, (laughs) um, In your Ted talk, Um, one of the things you mentioned was something to the effect of, I feel really lucky in some ways that I had this eating disorder. I wanted you to explain that, but then I also wonder if you could say the same thing about prosopagnosia. So this is a common thing that a lot of people with, you know, various ailments or disabilities will say is, you know, it's made me stronger in some way. Me personally, I kind of call horseshit on the uh, on face blindness <laughs> piece because I just wish it did, I didn't have to deal with it, and I don't see any any good coming from it. But um, but you know, could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel so blessed to have had an eating disorder, and I mean, going, I would never wish it on anyone. If someone said to me, "You have to go through the whole recovery process again," like it would make my stomach drop because that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But I think for me. I often feel like, and I hope this doesn't sound stuck up, but I really feel like I can do anything because I think I did the hardest thing I could possibly imagine was recovering from my eating disorder. And so if you said to me like, hey, I want you to, I don't know, build a space shuttle so it can go to Mars. I like, I have no idea how to do any of that, but I'd be like, okay, I can figure that out. Like, I really feel, I feel like I can do anything I put my mind to. I know who I am and I I feel okay with who I am. Um, And I think that's two really two qualities that I'm so so blessed and thankful to have because I know what it's like not to have those things I know what it's like not to believe in myself I know what it's like to not like who I am and it's a hard way to live um so I don't know does that explain it a little bit yeah Yeah. definitely Mm -hmm. yeah so you've uh you've proven to yourself what what you can do at such an extreme level it's like uh if you've climbed uh the tallest mountain in the world Everest. Everest if you've climbed Everest then any little hill in your neighborhood is not a big deal. That's kind of how I see it. And sure, there's some, there's some big hills around, um, but I feel okay about it. And even with weightlifting, like I did some things that I'm really proud of with weightlifting, but recovering from an eating disorder, I'm, I'm still proud of that. It's the thing I'm proudest of. It's the thing I will shout from the rooftops because I don't want anyone else to have to suffer. Any positives at all with face blindness? Good question. <laughs> you know, I think, and something I notice on the face blind group, like, I love, I mean, I think the irony of having a face blind group on Facebook is hilarious. Um, but something I really appreciate about the group is there's so many people that are positive and just laugh at themselves. Um, and I think I take a similar tack with face blindness. It's like, absolutely, it sucks sometimes. It sucks to have that moment of like, I don't know who that person is that was just speaking to me or I don't know even what conversation point to bring up because I can't remember ever having spoken to this person before. Like, it sucks. There's no question. But I think it's helped me 
learn on an even deeper level to laugh at myself. Um, I think it's, it's made me think more deeply about, you know, even about body image and what does that mean and what importance we place on it. And it's really helped me to carve out this piece that society places so much importance on body image. And in a way I use people's bodies to recognize them, but I don't have any judgment about that anymore. And I don't judge myself. Um, and I think the piece that I talked about on Christy Harrison's podcast is saying, well, you know, now I, now I really connect with how people make me feel. Like, I think if you ever knocked on the door and I opened it, like I'd just, to me, you, if I was to feel into, or if I was just to talk about how you make me feel, it's like very relaxed, comfortable, at ease. Um, you're interested in me. Um, and I, I think that's what I'd connect with when I connect with people. And so I think in a way, prosopagnosia has, helped me connect more with my soul and I mean that's kind of a big airy fairy statement it's a little bit esoteric and out there but I also think it's it's true it's helped me remember what's important in life and it's it's about who we are on the inside and laughing at ourselves doing our best yeah yeah that your point about uh the Facebook group. And I, I love it too. I mean, actually I haven't posted a link to that in the podcast. I'll do that on this episode uh, for sure. I encourage anyone who thinks they have this just to go there, read those stories for so many of us, especially people who have had it since birth. Uh, you're totally unaware that it exists for m most people. And you think you're uh, often, I think you think you're a bad person because yeah. you don't care enough about people to remember anything about them mm -hmm. because you can't recognize their face and you start to feel and probably it's exactly the opposite for most of us absolutely because we're aware of that we're actually pretty good people but we just can't seem to recognize other people yeah and i think what i really appreciate about the group as well is that they're really accepting of everybody's different levels of severity because i remember one person once posting like oh i feel like a um an imposter like I don't I don't think it's that bad and everyone immediately wrote back and was like any level of face recognition issues that you have like you're welcome here like it's it's a spectrum and whether it's severe or mild it's still hard like we get it and I just thought that was so supportive in making people feel like um feel like they have a place to come and even for myself I don't feel like prosopagnosia has been a massive massive piece in my life um, but once I joined the group, I realized how supported I felt in just having people that, that I could relate to. Yeah. Christy, the, um, the work that you do now, uh, I apologize. I'm, uh, I'm ignorant on the kinds of body dysmorphia and eating disorders that are out there. When I think eating disorder, I think I'm thinking mainly about my own issues, but there's also anorexia, sort of the other, the other side of that coin. Do you work with people? in both situations? Absolutely. So eating disorders have, unfortunately, um, you know, they're increasing every year. And just recently in the DSM-5, which is the, um, the manual that uh, psychologists and psychiatrists use to be able to diagnose people with different mental illnesses, is they actually increase the different, um, I guess, categories or, or types of eating disorders. So there's not just anorexia where people restrict their food, um, there's also bulimia where people might eat an excess of food and then throw it up. Um, there's binge eating disorder where people, um, struggle with the amount of food that they eat. Um, 
And there's also other types of eating disorders that are coming out now called orthorexia, which is where people become very obsessed with like clean eating. And so making sure that there's not chemicals in the food or they won't eat processed foods or they might cut out certain food groups. And even to the point where some fad diets like the keto diet or the paleo diet, absolutely, if someone doesn't have an eating disorder and they want to go experiment with that, by all means, but there's certainly the, the biggest indicator of an eating disorder is if someone diets, they're more, I can't remember the stats right now, but I want to say it's something like they're 25 times more likely to develop an eating disorder. So there's a big risk of people uh, trying out these keto diets or these paleo diets because it's very much about removing certain or some food groups and doing more of others and it begins to get people focusing on their food um we've also got exercise disorders where people get addicted to exercise and people will say oh that sounds like a great problem to have but when people run until their feet break and then they keep running like that's that's a real problem um we've had people that have exercised until they've developed like bone issues and had to have their feet amputated so it really becomes an obsession and a, and a problem it's hard to multiply yourself to reach as many people as you'd like to. It sounds like you do uh, some counseling over Skype, um, but there's only so many hours that you can be in a house with someone <laughs> actively helping them yourself. Um, do you have a lot of, what kind of resources do you have at your website for people who want to learn more about this or uh, how can they best reach out to you? That's a great question. Um, so I've got a team of coaches that work with me and oh, okay. they're all recovered, which I love. So everyone, everyone that's a coach with recovered living has walked the talk literally. Like when we say we get it, like we mean it. Um, so yeah, I think anyone who's struggling can absolutely come to the website. I have a bunch of resources on the site um, you know, books, websites, um, TED Talks, you name it. And then if you want to coach, like, absolutely, we can do virtual coaching. Um, there's live-ins. And also I have plans because just like you said, there is only one of me. Um, I'm hoping down the track to open a, my own residential treatment center in New Zealand. That would be um, one of my, a big feather in my cap because I think New Zealand really needs it. And um, I'm, I'm hoping I can make that happen. So what's the best uh, web address for people to find you? Recoveredliving.com. That's right. It was a magical find on the internet. You secured it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christy, thank you so much. Uh, great discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. For more info on this episode or prosopagnosia in general, visit faceblindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.